Hi everyone and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. On this show, we explore the art of meditation and mindfulness and we interview meditation teachers and everyday practitioners and scientists. We share tips and find stories that illuminate why this ancient practice matters now more than ever before. So you'll learn the latest science and really how to bring the benefits of meditation into your work, your health, your play, your relationships, and your life. Today, I am super excited to share this very intimate conversation with my friend, Eva Pomerank. Eva works as a registered psychological assistant or a therapist in training at the Therapy Center for Embodied Transformation. And she works in the context of mindfulness-based psychotherapy. Eva has some incredible things to say about mindfulness and meditation and the role it's played in both her own journey of healing and thriving, but also how it infuses her work with her clients. And through this work, Eva has seen amazing things. She's seen people heal anxiety disorders, depression, eating disorders, chronic relational issues, and much more. I met Ava at a birthday party, of all places, and we hit it off right away, and I had no doubt that I wanted to interview her for the show. I think you're going to learn a lot from today's episode. Ava really embodies mindful presence in a beautiful way, and she will help you understand more about why and how meditation is a practice and a process of learning, growth, and insight. And also how over time and through dedicated practice, you develop compassion, love, humility, empathy, and greater self-awareness. So let's jump into today's show with Ava Pomerank. Ava, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be featured on your show, and I'm excited for what's going to happen next. We'll see. Cool. <laughs> cool. Me too. I'd love to start each of our shows asking our guests to really share a little bit about your own story with everyone. What led you to meditation? What what was the catalyst? And if you can share your story with us, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. Okay. Um, let's see. I think from my very first memories, I can remember being a very sensitive child. Sensitive in that I, I felt emotions very strongly and also felt myself so strongly impacted by my environment and by mm. other people. I grew up in Hawaii and I have a twin sister. So mm. she's very similar to me and she's also very much very sensitive. Given that we were so sensitive and so highly impacted by our environment as well as being in relationship with each other and others, mm. We also were very curious, um, very creative, kind of free-spirited little kids. And we grew up in a rural environment, so we were outside a lot. We were having these incredible adventures from a very young age out in nature, the wilds of nice. the jungle. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, it was really incredible. And life was all about just learning and being curious and you know, inspecting, like really knowing the ridges of veins in a leaf or really getting to know the dirt or really getting to know the the colors in the sky when the sun sets or the colors in the sky when the sun rises. We spent a lot of time playing in that way and getting to experience that with each other too. As a part of being so sensitive um, I was a very emotional little girl, and I'm still a very emotional adult. <laughs> um, and join the club. Yeah, I know, huh? 
<laughs> yeah. I guess we're all very emotional. Yeah. But as I got older, growing up in Hawaii, dealing with being um, actually a white person growing up in rural working class Hawaii, there were particular social challenges um, just due to the history there and what being white represents in sort of the collective cultural trauma in Hawaii. Mm. There's a lot of pain around the Hawaiian kingdom being overtaken by white colonizers. So it was challenging growing up as a white person in Hawaii. Additionally, I was just such a sensitive, emotional child that it really, it seemed to impact me very strongly tapping into even emotional slights or the way in which I noticed I was being treated even on a subtle level. Um, and then as I got older, um, still being very emotional, very receptive, um, very highly impacted, as soon as I hit puberty, that was a, you know, naturally an even more challenging time. And uh, as I became aware of myself as a sexual being, as a social being with status, as I became aware of myself as a productive generative being where the focus of life wasn't just playing, but was also how do I fit? What is my purpose? What is my role? These questions hit me very strongly on an emotional level. And they were questions that were always there for me. It was a very, very challenging time emotionally for me from about age 11 to 18. Um, and being that I was somebody, or I still am somebody who's always been so curious and someone who is sort of like a seeker and a free spirit, I, I always had this question during that time, like, is there something greater? Is there something more that I'm, I'm missing out on that I, you know, have haven't discovered, you know, could it be that my experience of being this highly emotional person who suffers a lot, could it be that this isn't the whole reality? Like there could be something more for me. Things could yeah. be different. And I didn't grow up in a religious family. Um, we were only slightly spiritual. I was never taught meditation. I maybe learned to pray but it wasn't something that was normal. Um, and when we prayed, it was more for protecting other members of the family. But there wasn't really like any spiritual guidance or, you know, my, my main spirituality in hindsight was just my capacity to have peak experiences, to, to have these extreme bliss experiences in nature, mm. you know, in, in the ocean with trees, with animals you know, along with my sister in enjoying, mutually enjoying the beauty and the, the nourishment of the land, really. Yeah. And so this question continued for me, and I was a very um, ambitious high schooler, uh, middle schooler and high schooler. I was very much into, you know, getting very good grades, really proving myself. I had kind of a competitive streak, all these things you know, were fed by me being a very emotional, passionate person. And then also there was the aspect of trying to help myself feel better about myself through success and achievement. I experienced great success in high school. And I started seeing pretty early on that the happiness that came from success was fleeting. I started already understanding that there was something going on where I couldn't find what it was that would actually make me happy. Mm -hmm. And this came from being severely, like, even in the midst of being very successful in high school and being ambitious and, and doing very well, this, this came in the midst of actually being quite depressed and having many emotional issues. So I had gotten to a point through how much suffering I was going through in my family, as well as um, in school, in just dealing with myself, it just everywhere, there was just really so much pain for me 
And being the sensitive, emotional person that I am, it just was relentless. It it didn't stop. I was either in severe anxiety or experiencing some level of depression ongoing for from about age 11 to 18. And wow, that's a long Wow. It is a very long time. And yeah. with the kind of family I grew up in, there was a way that part of what created the challenges at home for me was I don't think my parents really knew enough about mental health to really recognize how much I was struggling. There were several other things going on with my parents that had them be pretty preoccupied. Like there were a lot of ways I felt pretty alone in dealing with my my life and my own experiences. And actually, if it wasn't for my twin sister, things could have ended up even more difficult for me. Um, we were like our our threads to each other, yeah. our connections to each other basically kept us on this planet. So, you know, there were some very dark times. And it occurred to me that everything that I was doing in how competitive I was and the successes I was having, that nothing was actually enough to make me happy. Or if mm. I did feel happy, it was fleeting. And it got to the point where I realized that there had to be something more. Like I looked around me and I realized there are people who seem to be really happy. What is going on that helps them be happy? And mm. this was a constant question for me. You know, of course, in the teenage mind that I had, sometimes I would think, oh, well, what makes them happy is that they have, they're more beautiful or, you know, they're more popular or maybe they have less responsibilities, or they're not as smart, so therefore they don't have these certain questions or thoughts, and therefore they don't generate as much pain for themselves. And I really spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to like grapple with why it was that I wasn't happy. Mm. Um, because I was like, if I'm in this much pain for the rest of my life, I don't know how I'm going to get through. I realized, some part of me realized this was not sustainable. And it seemed like adult life was going to be very challenging for me and far more challenging than it appeared like it was for other people. I'd gotten to a point around like age 12 or 13, I realized that I had a gift for being able to really deeply listen to other people and to start to understand other people's emotional worlds much more than my peers could. And I think it's partly due to the fact that I am such an emotional person and I've been through hell in a lot of ways. Um, and I've been through so many different emotional extremes that I could sit with people's emotional extremes. Mm. And at that point, I had the thought in mind of what do I want to do in my future? And um, I realized I wanted to be a therapist. I didn't know how I was going to do that or what, what that entailed if I had known that going to school for five to seven years for a PhD to be a psychologist was what it entailed. I maybe would have dropped that dream at, yeah. as soon as I had it. But, you know, what mattered at that point was that I felt some sense of purpose and I felt really excited at, mm. at there being something that like some part of me awoke to the possibility that finding my purpose could help me be happier. Yeah. <laughs> so I went through all of high school and middle school knowing that I wanted to be a therapist. Because of how ambitious I was, I figured what the right thing I should do is go to a, a school that's well known for being prestigious or a school that would challenge me where I had more academic rigor in mind because that elevated my own status, my own sense mm. of worth. And mm -hmm. a guidance counselor at school, and she said, how about you get a day pass with your sister to go to a college fair? I was walking around in the fair, and from across the room, I had this intense experience of literally in my vision the room getting darker and across the room, one booth for a school being like lit up. And when I say literally in my vision, like it was, I don't think this was actually happening in 
for everybody else in the room. <laughs> uh, yeah. And something was happening though, where to this day, I don't know how to explain this experience, but I walked across the room because I was so drawn to this booth and it turns out it was Naropa University. And Naropa University is a Buddhist school or it's it's a school where the education is inspired by Buddhism and inspired by a lineage of Buddhism that is pretty radical. But I was so drawn to it. And what's amazing is I went right up to the booth and shook the person's hand. And I don't even remember what the person's face looked like that was sitting in the booth. But I remember when I shook her hand, immediately I was like, oh my gosh, I have never known anything more than this. Like this is the school that I need to go to. And I didn't know, wow. I didn't know anything about what they taught there. I didn't know they were a Buddhist school. I didn't know, I really didn't know anything other than how to spell the name of the school, which I couldn't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this was a great departure for me from how I normally had been functioning in the past, you know, seven years where I had, I'd really depended on being very ambitious, very rational, very intellectual as a way to like help me manage also how much emotional pain I was in and how much I was suffering. So it was a big thing for me to have such a strong intuitive experience that I couldn't deny it and I let it be there and I let it confirm for me a huge decision I was making in my future. So I got the application. I went home. I told my mom, I'm not going to Berkeley. I'm going to Naropa. Naturally, she freaked out and yeah. um, was very concerned. But I knew so strongly for the first time in my life that something felt right. So I filled out the application. I got into Naropa. I was very happy. Then I get to Boulder. and uh, That's Boulder, Colorado, yes, for to Boulder. those of you who may not. Yeah. Exactly. So Boulder, Colorado. So this was many months. Like I think it was probably about eight months You know, between finding the booth for Naropa and then ending up at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado, before it finally dawned on me what I'd done. <laughs> Yeah. And I got there and I was like, oh, uh-oh, what did I do? Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh, what did I do? What did I do? And I I went into a full-on crisis. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm at a Buddhist school. This is not an, like a traditionally academically rigorous program. Like it did have some academic rigor, but not it's not notable for that. Like that is not what Naropa is known for. I got there and I was around all these people that were very new to me. And this, the first time I was living outside of Hawaii and it was a huge crisis for me. Um, and then, you know, I just, one of the first classes I had was Buddhist psychology and, uh, cause I entered their contemplative psychology program. That is where I started to learn some of the fundamentals of meditation. Mm. And because I was going through such an identity crisis, a crisis of, in like every regard, and people were sharing this new thing with me called meditation that supposedly helped you deal with your suffering and be happier, I was like, oh, wow, okay, well, I guess this is my time to try it. And, give me some of that. Yeah, give me some of that. Yeah, so that's when I started trying out meditation. Wow. So that's amazing. I mean, did you when so you started meditation there in the context of the Buddhist psychology program? Did what happened? Like when you started practicing meditation, did did it deliver on the promise? <laughs> um, yes and no. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> It's not going to be an overnight fix. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. I guess with what I've found in my practice is that when I first, in looking back, when I first started, there was a way, it felt very confusing. It felt disorienting. I guess that's sort of mm. some confusion. Um, yeah. 
there are ways I would be practicing self-aggression. Like I, I would sit there and I would say, oh, you're not doing it right. Or, you know, if only I could focus more, just be more focused. And I would practice holding the practice so tightly. Like I was very yeah. rigid about it. I was very mean to myself. I really, for the first time, got to see how much self-aggression I practiced on a daily basis. Mm. And it was horrifying to be faced with that initially. Um, and did did you recognize it as such when you were sitting, or did it take? It must have taken some time to begin to recognize that's what was happening. Oh yeah, I didn't recognize that's exactly what was happening initially. But what helped is I was in classes that did talk about self aggression, and. Mm -hmm. um, because of that, I was able to notice the more obvious forms of self-aggression. Like, obviously, if I'm calling myself stupid, that was an easy one to catch. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but you know, there were more subtler forms of self-aggression where I was like under the name of discipline, so to speak. I was actually forcing myself to meditate and, and sort of um, being so rigid with myself about how to practice and my, my emotional well-being was very dependent on whether I did it correctly. And that is a place where I didn't recognize initially that that was self-aggression. So yeah. I was like, God, I think so much. This is so bad that I think so much. I need to just stop thinking, stop thinking, stop thinking. I couldn't see how, you know, that that's actually a part of the practice to be aware of that and to trail off and then come back. Um, yeah. You know, I, I couldn't see that that was actually allowed, that that was, there's no wrong way, so to speak. But having yeah. that rigid view that there is a wrong way um, was the self-aggression that I'm talking about that was more insidious or more self Yes. I think it's great. You, you talk about it in a way that's, I think, going to be really helpful for everyone. Number one, by naming it self-aggression. And I think in the way that you described it, probably a lot of people are going to recognize that action in themselves because it is something that I hear a lot from practitioners on the website. This is, it's just a very common challenge for people to, in a certain way, let go of, as I heard you describe it, I would say almost like it's very natural to bring that achievement orientation to meditation. Oh, definitely. And, you know, all that sort of self-talk around pushing yourself to like achieve, to be better, to kind of, but it's like, we're talking almost about two completely different paradigms <laughs> and you bringing like, cause me, you know, I grew up in New England, Northeast, WASP. It was same thing, you know, I've like, privileged boarding school environment. It was just like going for the top baby. And then like <laughs> meditation, just, you couldn't think of a better foil for that, uh -huh. <laughs> for that whole mindset and worldview. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I particularly like though, how you just talk about it as self-aggression, because I, I just think it's helpful and it makes the effect and the consequence very explicit. I think that's what I like about you using that term. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, I, th I think it will be helpful for people to, to hear it in that context. Wonderful. I'm, I'm glad it came out like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, you started guess, to see this, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I Go guess for I it. could answer how I did feel that it was helpful. Like yeah. What kept me going back? Great. When I started meditating, even in the midst of all of this self-aggression, there was a way that I actually, it boosted my self-esteem to know that I was doing something and doing something like at times I could do it well. Yeah. And there were also all these reading materials I was getting as a part of my school that were talking about the benefits that people get from meditation. And I think I I think initially in the way that I was meditating, there'd be points I would put myself into a trance. I would sort of will myself into a happier, more blissed out 
state. And what I've come to see in the progression of my practice is that there's even benefit to doing that in the beginning. There, there was real benefit for me making myself have an experience that confirmed that I could be happier with meditation, even if that still was a manifestation of ego or an expression of ego. And I want to hear what you have to say, but when you say it might be helpful to define for people, when you say that that is a manifestation of ego, why exactly you're saying that? Okay. So I, I was going in to this practice with a very distinct agenda of getting away from my pain. Like I didn't want to experience pain anymore. And I still didn't understand like my intellectual understanding of the difference between pain and suffering was so new. And, you know, I, I couldn't see, I didn't have the direct experience yet of knowing that my resistance to pain, my avoidance of pain, my lack of acceptance and sort of open orientation toward being with my pain was actually something that created suffering for me. Yes. And at that time, I just wanted to get away from the pain and feel happy. And I wanted to know that I was meditating correctly and that I was doing it well because I also felt like that would make me feel better about myself. So how this really relates to ego is that there was a way I made meaning out of the practice of meditation. There was the way it started serving the purpose of me escaping from having to be a normal human being who experiences pain. Uh, Yeah. And there was a way I was using the practice to serve some idea about myself and to serve me strengthening the illusion of what it was that would bring me happiness. So, yeah. so ego for me has functioned as in some sense a good way to protect myself in certain yeah. situations but kind of ego goes into overdrive for me around self-protection, around protecting myself from things that my system perceives will cause me pain. So putting myself into a trance state or a dissociative state or using self-evaluation, like if I had a sit where I felt like it was a sit where I, where I was meditating is a sit where I felt like I did a good job, so to speak, (laughs) like I did it correctly. Yeah. These things all helped me start, like initially tune out from being most present with my experience and helped me start to identify with something that could make me feel better. Got it. And meditation became kind of like a, a remedy for me at that point. Right. Even though in hindsight, that wasn't the end point for me. Like it was just a part yeah. of the journey of like got it. needing something that got me hooked into meditation, but actually created a new a new issue to work with <laughs> or undo, you know, like a well, new it, a new trapping, yeah. so to speak. What you're describing is such an interesting part of the journey because I th- I I can relate to it directly from my own experience, but also it's like, there's different ways I hear, for example, it's almost like your psychological ego and your spiritual ego. And I'm using those terms loosely, but it's almost like the part of us that needs like our structural kind of self sense Uh to be just healthy and whole. A certain way, those experiences are good. They reify that ego. And that's from a certain point of view, not unhealthy. And yet from the larger point of view, I think the ego in the, maybe the spiritual or Buddhist terms that I think you were describing, obviously the more we're reifying that self-sense or creating new narratives around the self, at some time or another, those are also going to become further 
obstacles uh-huh. ultimately to freedom or steeper self-understanding. That's is that is that a kind of an accurate or at least resonate? That's kind of what I heard you saying a little bit. Yeah. Does that yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. It became really beneficial to my psychological well-being, my psychological growth, as well as my spiritual growth, even yeah. though, you know, it was it was only a temporary place for me to spend time in before getting even deeper into practice where I could then start to realize, okay, here are the ways that I'm using meditation to avoid dealing with my human experience. There are ways I'm using it to avoid dealing with the emotions, the depth of emotion that I experience. You know, here are the ways that I've used it to sort of form a greater sense of identity, which has thus caused greater isolation or um, has separated me further from people. Yeah. Um, Because at that time, I started feeling like I was a lot better than others because I was practicing meditation and the people who I felt I was better than were not. And over time, I was able to realize like, oh, (laughs) there's an added part to this practice that I'm learning is, is compassion, empathy, is actually humility. And from the practice itself, I started to deconstruct my sense of feeling superior, which was a way I was protecting myself again from feelings of pain and despair and unworthiness. Yes. So, so yeah, I mean, the psychological ego as well as the spiritual ego, I think, came together and sort of melded together in a way in the beginning of the practice that had me continue to be curious about my experience and you know, I struggled in in new ways where I then generated suffering for myself because I was spiritually narcissistic. <laughs> you know, like I started viewing myself as better than other people. I right. um, thought I was I would I had figured things out and, and that I you know I knew how to do this right, and I had figured out the answers to all my suffering, and that wasn't the whole picture. <laughs> That was broken down by further practice and um, by further seeing that I was creating some real issues in my relationships and was not able to be in my full integrity Mm. because of it. But because I was doing the practice, I started seeing that too. Yeah, and I've seen that this is a regular step for many people on the path is always trying to be there and be more present with what's what's there, what's happening in the present moment and learning to be with whatever. And I learned eventually to to deconstruct what it was that was coming up for me, the new ways my ego both my egos were mutating the practice, but it all was in the service of deeper growth and realization too. Like the struggle was necessary. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I can relate to so much of what you're saying. I, I think it's it's really it's fantastic and it's very clear the way you're talking about it. And I, I really agree. I think it's this stuff is really like these are, I think are like perennial stages on the path. I mean I, I know for myself, I think I resonated with every single thing you said so far and I was you know, I lived in an ashram for fifteen years and mm-hmm. you know, now couple years out and you and I have talked about this, but I can see very clearly the kind of spiritual bypassing that really can, it can become so easy when you gain access to those higher state experiences and you can have tremendous experiences of bliss or moments of tremendous clarity and insight, then it's very natural to start to make conclusions about yourself and to think, well, yeah. you know, I'm really getting somewhere with this. And like, well, okay, on a certain level, there's there's something true about that, but not in the way that your ego wants it to be. And Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's so interesting, you know? And, and like I have, uh, since being in that context, I've really appreciated so much of what insight meditation has had to offer in terms of particularly a lot of what you're talking about, just sitting with your raw humanity and the challenge of not moving 
away from that when you do your practice. The challenge, and and there's this this quote I often quote a lot from Sharon Salzberg of it's it's never about the experience you're having. It's always about your relationship to that experience. Mm-hmm. It's such a exactly. simple right. I mean, it, and it's such a simple distinction, but it means everything. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and to be able to realize for me that I might think I have removed the shroud of reaction I'm having to my present experience, but over time in practice, in sitting meditation, I've come to see that there are many layers. And I might think that, oh, okay, now I'm not reacting. But then I realize there's this whole new framework that I've stepped into, this whole new layer which I'm filtering my experience through. And seeing that helps me get a sense of how strong the ego is, how much I, I want to avoid just deal, being with my pure present experience and that there are even been times in my life where I've believed that that's what I'm doing and and that hasn't necessarily been the case. Like right. <laughs> there's there's still another layer that's filtering, that's making meaning, that's that's removing me one step away or a few steps away from being able to pay attention really just to the raw experience of this present moment. And I don't know how much that goes away. Like I get to see the layers and I have points, longer periods where I'm able to be with my raw present experience, but it comes back. It's about, for me, realizing not just how I choose to react to the experience or respond, but it's also realizing the different layers that are coming in that are modifying my experience mm-hmm. and being able to be with those and sort of cut through those as well. Well said. I, I think, and I, I think that question you asked whether or not those kind of layers or filters ever really just stop accruing in your experience. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I just, because we're always growing and changing, I, I have to think that that's, why practice is so important because it's just, it's natural for that to happen. And exactly, you know, you, you have, yeah, you have people like the Dalai Lama. He's, he hasn't stopped practicing. You, no, you, you yeah. have, right. I mean, you have these highly attained people who are exemplars of compassion and, and really profound humanity and they're not stopping their practice. And that to me, it says something like, I, I felt like I had an idea at a certain point. Like you, there was an endpoint in this. Like there was a target, and and now I really don't think that way. I think it's much more this sort of process that you know uh-huh. of excavation or uncovering or unearthing of growth that exactly you've been talking about. I think that seems to, it, to me it feels more natural that seems more aligned with the, the, what my experience is yeah I mean it's if there's one thing I wish somebody had told me which I probably wouldn't have listened to but <laughs> it, you know in hindsight if somebody had told me this really great advice about what I would experience on this path I feel like I would have again I probably wouldn't listen but perhaps it would have gotten through yeah. Somebody had sat down and said like, Hey, this is a process. You know, it, there are so many layers here. There's so many new ways the ego comes in. There's so many new ways we, we sort of mutate the, the raw, simple experience of sitting and being with, and that that's okay. That's actually really important in the process of developing compassion, love, empathy, humility, greater self-awareness, you know, greater capacity to be with whatever. And that it, it wasn't necessarily about this place of enlightenment that was going to make me not feel pain anymore, or this place of enlightenment that was going to make me somehow not have to participate in the challenges of human experience. But yes. really, being in process helps me the way I find happiness, the way through these layers, these layers are actually the path toward 
further engagement with other humans and with life in a way that promotes happiness and opening and curiosity rather than rigidity, constriction, and pain and suffering. These layers I've found are are like little pieces of gold that we maybe don't don't value as much, or I know I didn't value as much when I first started, or I've become really frustrated with them in the past. As a result, there's a way it sort of like has helped me continue to refine, continue to open, and continue to relax into my humanity more rather than Mm. fight it. Mm. So I have another question for you. You you currently work as a as a therapist, right? Uh huh. Given the thread of our conversation, that the answer may be obvious, but how does med how does meditation figure into your work with your clients? Do you teach them mindfulness techniques, or how does your practice really infuse your work with clients? And I can see just from our discussion so far, it's got to be a tremendous asset in terms of your own awareness and your own capacity for empathizing, but I'm, I'm curious yeah. to, to hear you t- speak to that. Yeah, there's, there are so many ways that it, it is a fundamental part of what it is I do with clients. So much about the way I show up for another human being's experience. Um, so in this context as a therapist mm-hmm. has to do with the capacities I've built to show up for myself, to really be present with myself in deep pain, in deep challenge, to engage with what is real happening right now in this moment. So much of how I'm able to be present and be compassionate and be in a place of being open to another's experience is, I feel, I've drawn from the amount of practice I've done with meditation and that I continue to do. Like it's, I am by no means perfect and I, I still have my own challenges in being present and finding compassion at times, you know, connecting and opening to an experience, but it does so much impact my level of presence and awareness and capacity to be with. Additionally, in the work that I do with clients, I'm teaching them oftentimes to really deeply pay attention to what's happening in the present moment. In the present moment being the type of work that I do has a somatic or body-centered orientation as well. Mm -hmm. So I get people to pay attention to not only what they're thinking about an emotional experience, but also like the direct experience of what that emotion feels like in the present moment while sitting in the session with me and how it feels in their body. And I'm helping people learn how to pay attention to their body experiences of emotion, their energetic experiences of emotion, without rejecting it, without dissociating, without changing the top, the subject. Like I'm helping people build greater acceptance and awareness and an ability to track what's going on for them emotionally. And I'm helping them build a greater tolerance for being with emotional states that are very painful. Mm -hmm. And for some people, being with extreme happiness can be a form of pain too. You know, I'm not just saying that sadness, for instance, is something people reject, but some of us actually reject happiness too. Mm -hmm. And I'm teaching people how to learn to track the minutia of what's happening inside in the present moment. So bringing mindful awareness to the present moment and learn to be present with themselves. And additionally, I'm helping them learn to be present with themselves while also being in relationship with me and with the present moment and with the environment that we're in. So there's building mindful awareness of present experience, but also of this sort of never-ending experience of taking in relationship um, as well as remaining in connection with the environment. I wouldn't say that it's a replacement for meditation, but it certainly is an extension of 
in my experience with people, has really helped them extend their practice into it feeling applicable to their their relationships, to the way they're relating to the world off the cushion. And it also can be a, a great starting point for people to become more curious and interested in meditation. Yes. I sometimes also do like guided meditations with clients to help them get into a more receptive space and uh, aware space. But yeah, for the most part, mindfulness comes through in the way I described previously. Yeah, no, that's that's very clear. So that in terms of really guiding people or, or creating this kind of mindful container that you just described, what kind of fruits do you see as people really meet you in that quality of attention? What happens? Like what, what kind of movement happens for people? Like, Can you speak to that a little bit and tell us about that? I have seen people learn how to relate to their anxiety in a different way. I've seen people heal anxiety disorders. I've seen people heal their depression. I've seen people heal eating disorders. I've seen people heal really chronic relational issues. I've seen people learn to find their own sense of autonomy and confidence. I've seen people learn to find better ways to engage with the world that are more constructive and more that help them participate in life in a way that promotes happiness. I don't know if my answers are getting at what your question is asking or if you would like me to be more specific. No, I, I think that's really good. I mean, because I, obviously those are really significant. Those sound like all very significant breakthrough, not just experiences, but results from. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I'm this. What's important about the work that I do is that I, I really recognize that there's I'm here to help people learn to find their own wisdom and to learn skills that make them build capacity to be independent from me. So I come to this work with the thought in mind that I'm not trying to do something to make results happen, but I more come to a space. This is also related to the mindfulness. I come to this space really arriving for whatever happens in the present moment Mm -hmm. and with a sense of trust that through engaging in process, engaging in the present moment mindfully, that people find their own innate capacity to heal. And from there, they get the results that end up being the best for them. Yeah. I could hear that even the way that you were describing it. I have seen people heal depression. I have seen people heal anxiety. I have seen people... I picked that up right away in the way that you are articulating it. This is really about people independently finding their own source of healing. Exactly. Exactly. It, yeah. Another thing that really strikes me in what you're saying is how fundamental, really, based on, on the modality of your approach, how fundamental your practice must be to being able to show up in the way that you want to, in the way that you need to, to support people. Because it really, it sounds like you, not, it doesn't sound like, obviously you need to be an anchor in that relationship for people, at least temporarily, until they find their own anchor. And I I imagine your practice must play a huge role in that. Yeah, it does, definitely. Hmm. So can you say a little bit, well, so there are a couple of things. We're going to start to move towards a conclusion here in the interview, but can you say a little bit, well, I have a lot of questions here. We're not going to get to them all. Um, (laughs) Where is your practice now? What what is the focus of your your own meditation practice right now? That that's that's kind of one question I had and if you could speak to that a little bit. I right now in my practice am really focused on bringing my practice with me throughout the day. Right now I'm also incorporating a type of meditation that wouldn't be considered a mindfulness-based meditation, but I think it it definitely has mindfulness in it. Mm-hmm. But I do a type of meditation that, that helps me work with my heart. 
work with being gaining greater awareness of my heart being open mm-hmm. and gaining awareness of what it is that's creating constriction or blocking of openness. And that's a really good signal for me throughout the day of when I need to breathe, when I need to bring, when I need to slow down and when I need to ground and work to open. So a big part of my process is entering into a space where I'm able to bring mindfulness as just a natural part of what it is I'm doing throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means that I sit for an hour and a half or two hours in the morning. Sometimes, some days I don't actually end up sitting. And this feels important because I want to normalize for people listening in that, you know, I get that our schedules can be very busy. It can be very challenging to make time for practice. There are days when I still get resistant to sitting on the cushion. Mm. Um, And at the same time, that doesn't mean the practice is not happening for me. There's always an opportunity to practice, even as a part of walking around outside, just being more mindful of what's going on, letting myself take in and be receptive of what's there and noticing both externally and internally what's going on. So yeah, right now with my practice, there's a way I'm holding it where I'm not as rigid with myself. And I feel like I'm in a space where I'm able to be more self-compassionate. Yes. And I'm able to really settle into a place of recognizing that this is a process and that I have time. (laughs) I'm not you know, excitedly working toward the goal of enlightenment, which yes. will make me not suffer anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I still experience pain in my daily life. I, I still experience bits of anxiety. I still experience the challenges that we all go through around dealing with being an adult in this culture and this time. And at the same time, there's a way that it's become apparent that my practice is something that extends throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And it really is just a matter of the level of focus and quietness that I can get to, which has increased over time. Like I realize I'm able to settle into a meditative space much easier as I've put in more time sitting on the cushion. Hmm. And I'm seeing the fruits of that right now. And I will probably continue to as I go in and out of periods where I'm sitting more regularly or I'm sitting for longer periods. Nice. All right. Two final questions. This one's kind of, it's going to be a little out of the flow. What are some books or movies that have inspired you lately or, or moved you? So there's a book that is pretty popular. I think it's pretty well known in pop culture. There's a book called The Untethered Soul. Hmm. And um, I think Oprah maybe recommended it. My own therapist actually recommended it to me, I think, when it first came out, which was, I think, a couple years ago. I think the author is Michael Singer. This book is amazing. It always has something new for me. I've, I've read it through twice, and then I go back to it at different times just for random parts of it. Mm. And he really seems to bring together all different types of meditations and yogic philosophy and brings together the perception of like the, the way in which we understand consciousness through these frameworks and the way we understand how to practice with what is, how to be mindful. This book I found for the people I've recommended it to, and I sometimes recommend it to clients as well. I found that it speaks to people who are very early in their their practice or you know people who might be considered advanced and granted I don't consider myself advanced in the practice but I I mean it speaks to me so much I still get so much out of it that's that's really helped me <laughs> yeah that's where I want to leave it yeah that's um, great and- everyone I will link to that book the untethered soul in the show notes so you can check that out afterwards and then can you share some parting words of wisdom or some advice for anyone listening who's new or an aspiring meditator who's just starting out? 
I would say that chances are you've come to meditation because you've gone through a lot of pain. You've gone through a lot of suffering in whatever way. And I just want to give you some encouragement that there is a way to learn to relate to yourself that will eventually bring you greater happiness. It may not be the way you think initially. And I also want to say that if you are really struggling, you know, meditation is a wonderful practice. And at the same time, there are multiple ways that you can begin to find greater happiness. And I have tended to see for many people that the combination of either having a coach or a therapist combined with being on the path of meditation can be a good combination to work with the, and I've had to do this for myself, like I've found it very helpful to have a therapist while also having a meditation practice, can be very helpful for dealing with the psychological challenges that ultimately come up and arise as a part of doing these practices. And it helps the process too. Like the meditation will deepen the therapeutic process as well as the therapeutic process. The healing there can actually Mm. deepen Mm. the meditation practice. Mm. And um, Jack Kornfield, actually, who teaches Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, he actually talks a lot about how psychotherapy and meditation are not the same thing and that both of them have their own necessary purpose. And how they can both be very helpful toward supporting the other. I guess that would be the advice I have for people. Always a good idea to have multiple sources of support and ways you're helping your mental health and to depend on any one thing as being your complete remedy can sometimes create challenges. There can be pitfalls in that. So I would just recommend giving yourself permission you know, if you're going to be doing meditation to try out many several types, see what works best, as well as get help psychologically. Awesome. Ava, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Where, if people want to learn more about your work, if they want to connect with you, do you, mm-hmm. do you have a website or what's the best way for people to, to uh, follow up? And is there anything you also want to share, like upcoming work or uh, mm-hmm. a- anything? I work for a therapy center called Therapy Center for Embodied Transformation. And I work under this psychologist, Dr. Miguel Hidalgo Barnes. And he and I work here and we offer therapy to the public out of Oakland, uh, right on Lake Merritt in Oakland, California. And we have a website, or more aptly, he's the one who runs the website. And I, you know, I feature some writing on there as well. The website is called sustainingmindfulness.com. Excellent. I will link that up in the show notes as well. Great. Yeah. If anybody listening to this would like to make contact and has any questions about what I've discussed on this show, feel free. Um, There's a way to make contact with us through the website. Perfect. All right. Ava, thank you. You're so welcome, Morgan. I'm so glad I did this interview with you. Me too. It's been such a pleasure. I couldn't agree more. It's been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Ava. To follow up with Ava or to learn more about her, you can check out the show notes for episode 32. Just go to aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast and look for episode 32. And if you enjoyed today's show, I'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. That is one really big way that you can help other meditators discover this show. It's huge. Just go to aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes and you can let us know what you like and what you don't like or how we could improve or what 
kind of shows you'd like to see in the future, what topics you'd like to see us feature. I read all your comments and I appreciate every one of them. Also, you can pick up some goodies at our website. As part of our Meditation for Life series, you can grab two 20-minute guided meditations and also a three-part meditation seminar. Really great stuff, which I think you'll love. Just head on over to aboutmeditation.com and you will find it there. And today, let's end with a quote from the Tibetan master, Mingyur Rinpoche, who says, If you remember that awareness of whatever occurs is meditation, then meditation becomes much easier than you think.